Good morning, everybody. It's a lovely, bright, sunny morning, and it's great to be here with you all to worship God, to share fellowship, to enjoy each other's company. Some words from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hands will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the lights become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The nights will shine like the day. The darkness is light to you. And so let's come to God now in our prayers of approach. We pray together. Holy and awesome God, it is our privilege and our pleasure to meet together in your name. It is our custom to come to a place of stillness and quiet, a place in which we can shut out the noise and the busyness of the everyday so that we can focus uninterrupted on you. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, honest with you, we find that the everyday is not so easily shut out. Thoughts creep unbidden into our minds, and our attention wanders. Patiently, you wait for us, not scolding, not turning away, but reaching out to draw us back into your embrace. We are sorry, Lord our God, that our worship is not always what we feel it ought to be, that our prayers can lack the fervour we feel they ought to have, that our love for you is so small and weak when yours for us is boundless. We are sorry, Lord our God, that our lives never quite match our intentions, that our best is always marred by mistakes or things we've missed out, that our service for you is so limited and faltering when your grace for us is unending. We're thankful, Lord our God, that you do not measure as we measure, nor do you judge as we judge. We are thankful that your mercy, grace and love are given freely and without favour. We are thankful that as we meet here now, there are no doors that can bar your entry, no obstructions that you cannot overcome. And that whether or not we recognise it or notice it, whether we feel it or whether we feel strangely empty, you are with us. 
mysterious God, source of our being, giver of life and goal of our aspirations, accept our praises, forgive our faults, and lead us onwards in the footsteps of Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. Our readings this morning are all taken from the New Testament. And first of all, in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 28. As they came near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they held him back, saying, Stay with us, the day is almost over, and it's getting dark. So he went in to stay with them. He sat down to eat with them, took the bread, and said the blessing. Then he broke the bread and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? They got up at once and went back to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven disciples gathered together with the others and saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. The two then explained to them what had happened on the road and how they had recognized the Lord when he broke the bread. And while the two were telling them this, suddenly the Lord himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were terrified, thinking that they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you alarmed? Why are these doubts coming up in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Feel me and you will know, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you can see I have. He said this and showed them his hands and his feet and they still still could not believe. They were so full of joy and wonder. So they asked him, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of cooked fish, which he took and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the very things I told you about while I was still with you. Everything is written about me in the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets, and the the Psalms had come true. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and must rise from death three days later, and in his name the message about repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and I myself will send upon you what my Father has promised, but you must wait in the city until the power from above comes down upon you. And now in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia writes, This is the message from the one who is holy and true. He has the key that belonged to David, and when he opens a door, no one can close it, and when he closes it, no one can open it. I know what you do. I know what you have a little power, that you have a little power. You have followed my teaching and have been faithful to me. I have opened a door in front of you, which no one can close. And finally, in John chapter 10 
verse 7 to 10. So Jesus said again, I am telling you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All others have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Those who came in by me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only in order to steal, to kill and destroy. I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. Amen. When I was thinking about this, uh, this morning's sermon, I found an old pop song going through my head, which I think was from the, uh, the series Washington Behind Closed Doors, about nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. I was going to sing it to you, but it's probably not suitable for a Sunday. Um, a bit too uh, explicit in places. But there is something about being behind closed doors that seemed to be worth us spending a bit of time exploring together this morning. We reach the end of the Easter holiday season and those who are still in employment will be getting ready to go back to work if you haven't already done so. We also come to the end of the account in Luke's Gospel, Luke being the set Gospel for this year. And what is interesting with Luke's Gospel is his account, nobody sees Jesus until the evening of the first Easter Sunday, and everything is very much compressed together. We have Cleopas and the other disciple who have run seven miles back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, to a place that we don't quite know where it is because nobody tells us, and they meet with the 11 remaining disciples and the others who are with them, whoever they are. It's a very compressed story, and if you read it very literally, you actually could get Jesus ascending on the end of Easter Sunday because there's no gap between Jesus meeting the people and then taking them out and, and giving them the final commission. It's only by reading the other Gospels and by going on into the book of Acts that we build up our much more familiar picture of the events between Easter Sunday and Ascension and indeed beyond. Mark, the first Gospel generally accepted, always fascinates me in that its earliest ending ends with terrified women who run away and don't say anything to anybody. Whether they ran off behind closed doors and hid, or whether they just ran away, I don't know. But that fear, the things that drive people into hiding, <coughs> is how Mark's original ending leaves us. Matthew has the women sent off to tell the disciples about Jesus. Then he takes a little detour to tell us about the Jewish authorities and how they bribed the guards to say that the body had been stolen. And then he leaps on to the Great Commission. It's only really John in the fourth gospel, a more unusual approach, that lingers with the disciples as they wonder, as they worry, as they're scared, as they hide away behind locked doors. 
And it's a familiar story, uh, one I've preached on many times in many places, how even a week after they meet Jesus, they are still behind locked doors. It's the account um, of Thomas meeting Jesus. They are back behind closed doors. They are scared. They're thinking about going back to being fishermen, some of them, despite everything. They may have had this amazing encounter with the risen Christ, but they're not yet ready to be his witnesses. Despite the fact that all the Gospels, apart from Mark, tell us that they are told to go and bear witness. And as I was thinking about today's uh, service, as I was thinking of what would be suitable Bible passages for us to reflect upon, this whole idea of doors, doors open, doors closed, doors locked, doors unlocked, was something that would be worth us thinking about, if only briefly. I think it is impossible for any of us who live in a Western liberal democracy with our right to religious freedom enshrined in law to imagine what it would have been like for those first disciples in the weeks after Jesus' arrest and execution. For them, there would have been a very real fear that they were the next one for the chop. They'd seen what happened to Jesus, and it could be them next. Who else would go and whisper to the authorities, and they would be arrested and taken away? If we go outside the Bible and read early history, we know that the early believers in Jesus came into conflict with both Judaism and with Rome. They were persecuted. Many were martyred in our modern understanding of the word because they named Jesus as their Lord. They became objects in the Roman arena, just killed for sport. 2,000 years on, there are still places in the world where it is very dangerous to profess to believe in Jesus Christ. But here in the UK, despite what the alarmists would tell us, the worst we're likely to get is a few veiled insults, and most likely people will just ignore us and think we're irrelevant. So why is it that we hide away behind locked doors? If not physically, then at least metaphorically. <coughs> Unable or unwilling to be witnesses to what it is we claim that we believe. There is, if we're honest, a little bit of an irony for us as a church with our self-chosen motto of opening doors, opening minds, opening hearts. That's probably in the wrong order, but I know opening doors comes first. So readily we wind up shut away from the community that, it, that we claim we want to serve. Whether, I mean, it's lovely this morning, the doors are physically open because there's no howling gale and it's fairly warm. But actually, a lot of the time, our doors physically are closed, but also perhaps metaphorically. Why is it we keep our doors closed? And why does that matter? What is it that we're scared of, individually and corporately, that prevents us from seriously engaging with the people around us? Well, I suspect there are lots of answers, but here are a few that I came up with when I was trying to be honest myself this week. About fear of rejection. 
What if we open ourselves up to other people and we risk sharing what we believe and they reject not only what we say, but us? Perhaps we're frightened of being rejected. (coughs) Do you know there were people who came to Jesus and heard what he had to say and said, no thanks, that's not for me. It's too difficult, it's too radical, I don't want to go there. Or what about the fear of ridicule? If we explain our deeply held convictions, maybe share our struggles, certainly share our belief in Christ. What if people laugh at us? What if they say we're round a twist? What if they say we're silly? Gospels tell us that people said to Jesus that he was round a twist or deluded or possessed by a demon. Perhaps we're scared of offending people. What if we say what we believe and other people don't like it or they take exception to it? Not because we're arrogant or objectionable in how we say it, or at least I hope we're not, but because it's too challenging and makes them feel uncomfortable. Well, that was Jesus' experience too. Or are we scared of being challenged? You know, what if somebody actually has the audacity to say, you believe what? You do what? And what if actually their questions seem to be justified? Do you know, Jesus had that same experience. He was once sitting at a well. And a woman had a conversation with him and challenged him, a Samaritan woman. Or there was a Syrophoenician woman who came to him and asked him to heal his da- her daughter. And he said, well, actually, I've come for the Jews. And she said, but even dogs can eat the crumbs under a table. And somehow it seems that Jesus changed his thinking at that point. Perhaps we're scared of being challenged, whereas it seems Jesus almost enjoyed it. Or are we afraid of failing? What if we take the risk, we engage with people, and it all goes wrong, whatever we mean by all goes wrong? What if we fail? Well, actually, you know what? Humanly speaking, Jesus failed. (coughs) He ended up on a cross, being executed. It's only through God through God's grace, that that failure turned out to be the most amazing victory of all time. Whatever these fears are that we have, and why ever we have them, as soon as we take seriously the stories of Jesus, we begin to realise that our fears can be barriers or doors blocking our ability to do our part in God's work. Our attitudes actually stop us doing what it is we profess. So it's a case of actually opening the doors, not of the building, but the doors of our hearts and our minds, so that we can be released, set free, to go out and fulfil our calling 
as individuals, yes, but also as a church. We don't do this on our own. We are in this together. This is what God has called us to do. Well, that all sounds lovely, doesn't it? And I could just go home now and you just say, well, yeah, great. Thanks, Katrina. We feel nice and beaten up now. So what do we do about any of this? Well, I gave you a sheet with lots of bits and pieces about doors in the Bible. And we're not going to use that, but it's stuff you can take home, give yourself a night test and find some scriptures to ponder. But the book of Revelation has two references to doors in those opening letters to the churches. And I had one of my strange, that's an interesting place name, moments um, this week as I was looking at them. The church at Philadelphia, the church where the place name means brotherly love or sibling love, is given this image of a door that nobody can close. It's a little church. It's not a strong church. It feels quite weak. And perhaps the people there are scared and worried. And they are given an open door, an opportunity that nobody can take away from them. This is something special for them. And actually, do you know what? I believe there is something special for us. There is an open door, an opportunity that God gives us in this context, in this location, as by Scottish standards, a fairly small church. We'd actually be a fairly big church by English standards, but there you go. We are a relatively small church. But as we are, God gives us opportunities, and nobody can stop that. They've given us by God. The only people who can stop it really is us. If we say, no thanks God, we'll just let it go. An open door, but we need the courage to step out through and do what God calls us to do. The second church that is given an image of a door is the church at Laodicea. Interesting name, Laodicea. It roughly translated means democracy, or the judgment of the people, apparently. So Google tells me, and it must be right. This is a church described as a bit wishy-washy, a bit something and nothing, and God is waiting patiently outside the door, knocking and saying, I'd like to come in, but I need you to invite me in. One of our big challenges as Baptists is the way we run our churches that are at once our biggest strength and our biggest weakness. The whole idea of congregational governance, that every voice matters, that the newest and most recent member of the church is as important as the oldest and most theologically trained and goodness knows what else, all of those voices come together That is a great strength and a great principle to have. And at its best, enables us together to discern the mind of Christ. And at its worst, leads to us going round and round and round in circles and never quite deciding anything. And all the time, God waits patiently, saying, open your hearts. Open your minds, and I will come in 
and sit down with you and eat with you and be with you. Sometimes, perhaps, we're too busy with our heads and our hearts in a human way that we don't quite open ourselves up for God to empower us to go through those doors, to take those opportunities. The last image we had was from John's Gospel, and it's Jesus as a gate or a doorway for the sheep. It's one of the most mysterious and one of the most wonderful images Jesus used about himself, and often it gets overlooked or misinterpreted. But our thoughts today are just going to one sentence from that. It's um, part, verse 9b of John chapter 10. They will come in and go out and find pasture. They will go in and out and find pasture. And why that is challenging and why it's important is it reminds us that gates and doors allow two-way traffic. Very easily, we think about the idea of the door that we open as for other people to come in and join in with us because we've got it all sorted, so just come and be with us and it'll be lovely. But actually, it's also a door for us to go out. It can be a danger for any church, and we're no different from any church in this respect, that we're more worried about, pardon the language, bums on seats or souls on the train to heaven than we are about going out and doing what it is that we are called to do in God's world. Sheep came into the fold to be safe. There were thieves and there were wolves that could attack them, kill them, steal them. And the shepherd would lie across the gateway, the doorway, to guard them and keep them safe all night. But in the daytime, the shepherd would get up and the sheep would go out because that's what sheep are meant to do. They were meant to go out and feed in the pastures, go and find the places they were meant to do and be what sheep were meant to be. This door was about keeping them safe from attack, safe from being stolen away, but also to let them back out to be and to do. And I think there's a danger for us that we're more worried about the coming in, the coming away from the world, closing the doors and being kind of safe, than we are about the going out and getting mucky and finding the pasture and growing as we do and be what we are made to do and to be. Easter is an amazing time in the year that draws us to the heart of our faith that reminds us what God has done for us and for all through the events of Calvary and beyond. But it can be a danger that we, like those disciples, huddle away and hide and want to keep it all for ourselves or we're too scared to take the risk of going out. But each of the Gospels ends with Jesus saying, go and tell, go out through the doors and go out into the world. That's our challenge, I think, today. Not to open the door and wait for people to come in. There are churches who do that, you know. They say, well, the door's open. 
people come in, can come in. They don't. They carry on walking past. Our challenge is more than physically opening the doors. It's about opening our hearts, opening our minds, so that we can see that unique opportunity God has given us. And then find the courage, knowing, as we said to the children, that God is with us all the time to go out there and be and do good news in this place. We come now with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. God of Easter, who in Christ enters the places where we hide, afraid of ridicule and rejection, afraid of challenge and change, afraid of freedom and of failure, meet us now as we open the doors of our minds and our hearts just enough to glimpse the brightness of your love and the vision of what might be. Then, help us to throw wide the door of opportunity and, emboldened by your spirit, to step out into a world in need of good news, in need of a saviour's love. In a world of confusion and complex interrelationships, we pay for peace and hope. As news reports remind us constantly of war and disaster, we are reminded of the fragility of human life and of the delicate balance in the natural world. We pray for all involved in international matters that they would be alert to the biases of their own opinion and attuned to the needs of others. For communities devastated by natural or human disaster, we pray that relief work will be swift and effective. For individuals and communities exploited by wealthy nations, we pray for justice. As the process of preparing for UK-wide elections take place, we thank you for the freedom that we take for granted. Freedom maintained through careful government. We pray for all who are involved in campaigning and canvassing. For all candidates. For all who work behind the scenes seeking to serve the people of these islands. Grant wisdom and insight. Graciousness and diligence to all involved. And may each of us take seriously our responsibilities as citizens of democracy. And as we think of government, we pray for the people of Poland today in shock and disarray. As we seek boldness to go out into the community around us, to discover what you are doing and to find our own place within it, 
We pray for those whose lives intersect with our own. For those living in the tenements and flats around our church, of different ages and nationalities, each with their own challenges and opportunities. For those who work in small independent businesses and large companies, seeking to earn a living, each with dreams and aspirations, fears and frustrations. For those who sell the big issue, for those who sit and beg, for those who rush on by, busy with the tasks of the day, each in need of hope, opportunity and motivation for living. For those who teach and learn in the university and the colleges, sharing knowledge and seeking understanding, each one longing for growth and fulfilment. For those who lie in hospital wards and for those who treat them, file their notes, prepare their meals or clean the corridors. Each one yearning for wholeness. Lord, you have set before us an open door. Give us the courage to walk through it. Lord, you stand and knock at the door of hearts of those in need. Give us the courage to open it. Lord, you are the doorway through which we pass to safety and to service. Show us how each of those is part of our discipleship. Loving God, bringer of hope, giver of life, help us not merely to list our prayers, nor simply to seek comfort for ourselves, but to work with you for the incoming of Christ's kingdom. For in his name we pray. Amen.